As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. This is part two of our episode on Morning Dove, who is also known as Christine Quintaskett. I'm going to say it's a surprise two-parter, both in that when I started writing it, I didn't expect it to be two parts, and also in that at the beginning of part one, I don't think I said that it was going to be a two-parter, <laughs> uh, but it is. Surprises abound. Yes. So she was a novelist, an ethnographer, and an activist. And in part one, we talked about some context involving the confederated tribes of the Colville Reservation. And that context had just a huge impact on her family and the indigenous nation they were part of. And then we also talked about her early life and her introduction to a man named Lucullus Virgil McWhorter, who was sort of her editor, literary agent, and friend. Where we left off, she had written a book, and they thought that book was going to come out soon, but it was not published yet. She did a newspaper interview in 1916 that described the book as soon to be published. That publication turned out still to be years away. But we are picking up where we left off in 1916. In part one, we talked about how Morning Dove often earned a living by doing agricultural work. And at times, she also supported herself through domestic work. In 1916, while working as a housekeeper in Polson, Montana, she developed a serious illness. It was described as influenza and inflammatory rheumatism. She was sick for weeks, and she thought she was going to die, but eventually an aunt came to look after her and, in her words, quote, doctored me up with Indian medicines. She wasn't well enough to go back to the kind of physical labor involved with agricultural or domestic work. So she got a job working as a teacher at a school for indigenous children in Oliver, British Columbia. She had a sister who lived nearby, and she was able to live with her sister, Eventually, she used some of her pay to buy her own typewriter. After a while, she also built a small shack adjacent to her sister's house. It was kind of her writing shack. 
She contracted the flu again during the 1918 flu pandemic and was hospitalized for two weeks. In 1919, she got married to Fred Goller, who was an enrolled member of the Colville tribe and also had Wenatchee and white ancestry. This relationship seems to have been less tumultuous than her first marriage, but at times it could still be a struggle. They often worked together as migrant farm laborers, which was exhausting and sometimes very painful work for very little money. It also seems like he didn't get in the way of her aspirations as a writer, but he didn't really support them either. And they had their own internal conflicts in the relationship. She especially did not like it when he drank. By this point, she had known Luke Ellis McWhorter for almost five years, and their working relationship had evolved into one of mutual trust and support. She described him as having an Indian heart, and he was really her biggest source of encouragement as a writer. Often he was the person she turned to in order to keep herself focused and working on her writing. There were still some challenges, though. We mentioned in part one how McWhorter was much older than she was, and as a white man, he had a much different type of power and access to different connections than she did. Beyond that, while they were both focused on Indigenous stories and on her novel, which was focused on Indigenous characters, they were coming at it from very different perspectives. Aside from the obvious differences in their ethnicities and their life experience, McWhorter was really approaching things as an ethnographer, while Morning Dove was a storyteller. They also had some huge differences of opinion regarding language. McWhorter wanted Morning Dove's English to be as polished as possible so that her work might dispel stereotypes of indigenous peoples as ignorant and uneducated, But sometimes she would kind of look at his edits or material that he had written on her behalf and basically say she could not understand it without a dictionary. At the same time, the two of them did really learn a lot from one another over the course of their work together. As they worked through Indigenous stories and Morning Dove's fiction, he learned more about Salish languages and the community's worldview, and she learned from him about how to communicate with English speakers in English. In 1921, while visiting a museum in Spokane, Washington, Morning Dove saw a mounted specimen of the American Morning Dove, the bird. You might remember from part one, she had originally been spelling her pen name, Morning, M-O-R-N-I-N-G. In a letter to McWhorter, she said she had made a sad mistake with that spelling, and from that point on, she spelled her name with the U in Morning. Morning Dove's novel, Kogawea, The Half-Blood, a depiction of the Great Montana Cattle Range, was published by the Four Seas Company in Boston in 1927. It had taken so long to get the book published, and Four Seas was concerned that it would not turn a profit, so it required Morning Dove and McWhorter to provide part of the funding for its printing. For his part, McWhorter was ultimately not very impressed with this publisher, and he would refer to them as Four Puddles. Kogiwia is very, very approximately the word for chipmunk in the Insilchin language. The first syllable in that language especially is a little different in a way I have trouble replicating as somebody who doesn't speak that language. And the plot of this novel was inspired in part by a story called Chipmunk and Owl Woman. This story would also be part of Morning Dove's book Coyote Stories, which we'll be talking about more in a bit. This story is a Western romance, and in a lot of ways, it's about identity. Parts of it were inspired by Morning Dove's own life and experiences. 
the main character, Kogawea, had both white and indigenous ancestry. It lives both between and in both of these worlds. The book explores the differences between her life and experiences and that of her sisters, one of whom marries a white man and lives mostly in a white man's world, and another who is raised in indigenous traditions by a grandmother. Overall, the novel's indigenous central characters are the most fully realized. Many of the white characters are more one-dimensionally good or bad, and there are also stereotyped cowboys who mostly provide comic relief. Those differences between Morning Doves and McWhorter's approaches played a huge part in this book. And a lot of that happened after the last time Morning Doves saw it before it went to print. She had really been focused on writing a romance, one that she thought would humanize indigenous people to white readers when they read it. But McWhorter really wanted the book to be an ethnographically accurate portrayal of her culture and to include more history and ethnography. So he added in notes on ethnography and other material, including a section on indigenous music that was apparently plagiarized from another author named Anna Hurst. A lot of the literary discussion around Kogawea has focused on McWhorter's involvement with it and his influence on it. Even at the time, there were people who claimed that Morning Dove had simply put her name on a white man's work. And McWhorter did make meaningful changes to her work. A lot of articles about this book and about their relationship quote one passage from a letter that she wrote to him in 1928 after she had read the published book. She said, quote, I felt like it was someone else's book and not mine at all. In fact, the finishing touches are put there by you, and I have never seen it. So that sounds terrible. But the lines before those sentences put it in a kind of different light. Quote, I have just got through going over the book, Kogiwea, and am surprised at the changes that you made. I think they are fine, and you made a tasty dressing like a cook would do with a fine meal. I sure was interested in the book, and hubby read it over, and all the rest of the family neglected their housework till they read it cover to cover. Later on in 1933, she wrote him another letter. Uh, This has some uh, interesting typos in it, so we're going to read it as written. Quote, I frequently think how fortunate that I met you. My book of Kogawea would never have been anything but the cheap foolscap paper that was written on if you had not helped me get it in shape. I can never repay you back, I am sure, while we are here in this old planet. Too poor. Now you can tell from that uh, particular excerpt the kinds of uh, things that she still struggled with a little bit in English even at this point in her life, um, a lot of things that you read that that quote from letters sort of edit all of that out. And so it's harder to get a sense of like how she actually wrote. We will talk about her other work and her continuing relationship with McWhorter after a sponsor break. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. 
It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. Morning Dove's novel was not the financial success that she and Lucullus McWhorter had hoped that it would be. And then after it was published, most of her income continued from doing agricultural and domestic labor. A lot of the time with her and her husband working together, harvesting things like apples and hops. To be clear, she had critics in both white and indigenous communities, but publishing this book was also something that a lot of people saw as an accomplishment and something to be respected. After it came out, she became an honorary member of the Eastern Washington State Historical Society and a lifetime member of the Washington State Historical Society. White newspapers noted that she was the first Indigenous woman to publish a novel and cited her as an authority on Indigenous subjects. For example, a 1928 article that was reprinted in a lot of newspapers was about the history of smoking and whether the plant known as kinnikinick was the same as tobacco. It described her as resenting the idea that Indigenous people had migrated to North America from China or Japan, saying, quote, neither of these people nor any other smoked until they learned it directly from us. It went on to paraphrase her as saying that, quote, the finding of pipes in burial mounds are no proof to her that another race occupied this country before her own. The newspaper also quoted from Kogawea and its descriptions of indigenous smoking practices and uses for pipes. This idea of prehistoric migration to the Americas from Asia is going to come up again in a moment. And it's an idea that is still contentious or even offensive among indigenous communities whose oral histories place them on these continents since time immemorial. This also actually ties into recent archaeological research into fossilized footprints that date back to before migrations from Asia are believed to have happened. In the case of footprints found in White Sands, New Mexico, research suggests 
that they are at least 10,000 years earlier before migration from Asia is believed to have happened. Morning Dove also started doing a lot of work as an activist, advocating for other indigenous people and for people who made their living doing agricultural labor. The Wild Sunflower Indian Women's Club in Omak, Washington, promoted indigenous arts and crafts, and Morning Dove served as its president for three years. In 1928, she was one of nine founders of the Eagle Feather Club, which was focused on the social welfare and equitable treatment of indigenous peoples. She was also continuing her work trying to preserve indigenous stories and traditions, which she called folklores, with an S on it, which I kind of love as her her term for this. And this work had some complexities. The stories that she was collecting are part of a sacred body of cultural knowledge, and there are protocols around how and when they should be shared and who they should be shared with. Different indigenous nations all have their own protocols and preferences around these things, and it seems like there were people who had no concerns at all about sharing their stories with Morning Dove. Like her, a lot of them were afraid that this knowledge was going to be lost otherwise, But other people seem to have been more reluctant, and some of Morning Dove's letters suggest that she thought people wouldn't be willing to talk to her if they knew their stories were going to wind up in a book. Morning Dove definitely wasn't the only person trying to preserve and record indigenous cultural knowledge and heritage in this part of North America at this point. Another was James Alexander Tate. Tate had been born in the Shetland Islands, and after immigrating to Canada, he had married a Lake Apomac woman named Lucy Artco. He became immersed in Lake Apomac knowledge and traditions, both as a spouse and as an anthropologist and ethnographer. Anthropologist Franz Boas also hired Tate as part of the American Museum of Natural History's Jessup Expedition, which ran from 1897 to 1902 and involved teams in both the Pacific Northwest and Siberia, recording languages and cultural practices on both sides of the Bering Strait. The stated purpose of this expedition was to gather evidence that indigenous peoples had migrated to the Americas from Asia across a land bridge. But for Boas, the priority was documenting these cultures as they were increasingly threatened by the kinds of assimilationist and destructive government policies and other actions that we have been talking about. Morning Dove became immensely frustrated when she learned that Tate was paying people in the area $5 for their stories. From her perspective, he was an outsider, and she also could not afford to do the same. So she was frustrated about the fact that he was paying people for their stories and that he was doing this work at all. But eventually, she found more common ground with Tate. Like McWhorter, who she'd been working with a really long time at this point, he had come to this part of North America from somewhere else, and he wasn't indigenous, but he did have a sincere interest in preserving indigenous cultures and in advocating for indigenous peoples, including advocating for indigenous land rights. In August of 1929, McCorder's wife Anne died. They had been married for almost 35 years, and he was understandably devastated. His working relationship with Morning Dove had developed into a mutually supportive friendship over the years, and she was worried about him after his wife's death. Within a few months, though, they were hard at work on the collection that would be published as the book Coyote Stories in 1933. By that point, McWhorter had introduced Morning Dove to his friend, Heister Dean Gooey, known as Dean, who was initially brought on to work as a proofreader. 
Dean became more deeply involved with the book over time, though, along with his wife, Geraldine, who was one of the first people to graduate from the University of Washington's anthropology program. While they were all working on this book, Morning Dove was also continuing her advocacy. In 1930, she was one of the founders of the Colville Indian Association, which worked to get money for land claims that had never been paid for. In 1933, Congress passed the Emergency Conservation Work Act as part of Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal, trying to address the economic hardships of the Great Depression. This established the work relief program known as the Civilian Conservation Corps. And then legislation was passed establishing an indigenous division of the Civilian Conservation Corps not long afterward. But initially... Most of the foremen and supervisors who were hired for this division were not indigenous. Morning Dove and the Colville Indian Association fought for these positions to be filled with indigenous workers as well, with Morning Dove saying that she would take the matter to the Bureau of Indian Affairs if it wasn't resolved. Over the span of a year, the number of indigenous managers in the Corps rose from a little over 40% to about 60%. She was also doing a lot of public speaking for schools, colleges, community organizations, and the like, often sharing her culture, traditions, and stories with a mostly white audience. She typically spoke wearing her traditional Colville clothing, including a beaded buckskin dress and moccasins. We have talked in the past about indigenous writers and speakers who adopted a costume as part of their stage presence, in part because that seemed to be a way to get the interest of white audiences. But this was not a costume for Morning Dove. These were her clothes, and she wanted to normalize what she wore and show that it was an everyday part of life and not something that should be exoticized or discouraged. Morning Dove's book, Coyote Stories, was published in 1933, so named because the figure of Coyote was central to most of the stories in the book. The title page read, Coyote Stories by Morning Dove, Humishuma, edited and illustrated by Heister Dean Gooey with notes by L.V. McWhorter, Old Wolf, and a foreword by Chief Standing Bear, Oglala Sioux. This book sold really well, and it was reprinted within a year. It would have been impossible for one book to capture a fully authentic recording of these stories. Although the figure of Coyote is present in the stories and traditions of many indigenous peoples, especially across the western part of North America, the stories themselves have nuances among different tribes, nations, and bands, even down to the level of versions that have been passed down within individual families. They are stories that have a long history of being told aloud for specific reasons at particular times of year or for specific events. It's just not something that a book can fully encompass. But beyond that, this book was a lot different from what Morning Dove and McWhorter had envisioned when they first met one another 18 years before. Rather than a straightforward recording of indigenous cultural knowledge, under Gooey's direction, it had evolved into a work that was meant more as bedtime stories for children. This was not what McWhorter had originally had in mind at all. In addition to wanting to preserve the stories themselves, he was worried that presenting indigenous cultural knowledge as children's stories would reinforce the damaging stereotypes that indigenous people were childlike. Morning Dove had also removed parts of the stories that she described as ugly. At the same time, though, working on this book was an act of cultural preservation in a different way. 
Morning Dove and her collaborators had lengthy and wide-ranging discussions about language, down to fine nuances about how different words were used in different contexts. They had extensive conversations about the best ways to render an oral tradition, spoken in Salish language, into English print. Along the way, they essentially created a dictionary that included pronunciations, definitions, and notations about usage. And this work went on to influence McWhorter's own work as an anthropologist and an ethnographer. Traveling around the plateau to collect these stories had also given Morning Dove the opportunity to interact with a lot of people, to build connections with them and find out what their concerns were. And this connected to work that she did on behalf of John Collier, Commissioner of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which we will talk about after a sponsor break. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math and Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple podcast or wherever you get your podcast. To briefly recap something we talked about in part one. Over the latter half of the 19th century, much of the U.S. federal government's policy toward indigenous peoples involved forcibly removing people from their ancestral homelands to reservations. This was a violent, destructive, and genocidal process, and it often followed active warfare. So treaties signed between the U.S. and indigenous nations formally ended a conflict 
with the indigenous nations ceding land to the United States in exchange for an end to the fighting and then reservation land somewhere else on the continent. The General Allotment Act of 1887, also called the Dawes Act, shifted the United States' approach from one establishing reservations and removing people to them to one of allotment and assimilation. Reservation land was broken up and allotted to people individually, with purportedly excess land allowed to be sold to non-Indigenous people. This was, again, deeply destructive, with Indigenous peoples losing a lot of what had been reservation land. It was also paired with things like the boarding school system for Indigenous students that was meant to force children to abandon their languages and cultures and assimilate with white society. There's more about both of these periods of history in our two-part episode on the occupation of Alcatraz that came out in 2019. In 1934, the federal approach shifted again with the Indian Reorganization Act, also called the Wheeler-Howard Act, which was part of a collection of efforts known as the Indian New Deal. This legislation followed the Miriam Report, also called the Problem of Indian Administration, which had come out in 1928. There is some debate about whether the Miriam Report directly led to the Indian Reorganization Act, but this was a scathing report on conditions across reservations in 26 states, detailing serious problems involving poverty, inadequate health care, and an overall lack of funding. The report characterized decades of federal policy toward indigenous peoples, including that policy of allotment, as at the root of these issues and it called for massive reforms. The U.S. government slowed down on issuing land allotments soon after this report was published, and the Indian Reorganization Act followed a little more than five years later. This legislation certainly was not perfect. Among other things, it didn't apply in the territories of Alaska and Hawaii, and it was focused on the idea that tribes would be governed by tribal councils that would be accountable to the U.S. Bureau of Indian Affairs. And it could not undo the centuries of history that had already passed. But it did start to move the U.S. government toward a policy that focused on self-governance and self-determination for indigenous peoples. It also shifted the focus from one of assimilation with white culture toward one of preserving indigenous cultures and traditions. John Collier had been named Commissioner of the Bureau of Indian Affairs the year before the Indian Reorganization Act was passed. He was one of the people who helped get the act through Congress. This act abolished the allotment program that had been set up in the Dawes Act, and it provided funding to indigenous nations to purchase land that had been taken from them. Because part of the focus here was indigenous nations' own self-determination, tribal members had the right to vote on whether to accept the terms of the act. And John Collier possibly having heard about Morning Dove through her publication of Coyote Stories, contacted her to ask for help in outreach to the people of the Colville Reservation. Morning Dove was in favor of the Indian Reorganization Act. She thought that it would help protect tribal lands and might even lead to the restoration of the north half of the Colville Reservation, which had been returned to the public domain in the late 19th century. The law also included provisions for additional funding and support, all of which she thought would benefit her people. Among other things, she spoke at a conference in Oregon that brought together representatives from eight reservations, saying, quote, I fought for 25 years for the cause of Indian people. 
The reason I have fought for my people is this. I owe it to them, old men and women of the Colville Indians. Let us hope that this new form of government will not be imposing on our old people, that you younger men and women will have a voice in the government of the U.S. Let us try a new deal. This vote was contentious for many of the tribes and bands that lived in and around the Colville Reservation and other places as well. Some who opposed it wanted full autonomy instead, not to be governed by a council that essentially reported to the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Some in the interior Pacific Northwest wanted a return to the social structure of small autonomous bands, not the collection of bands that had been unilaterally grouped into one reservation and recognized as one tribe under an executive order in 1872. The Indian Reorganization Act also incorporated the idea of blood quantum into its definition of who was or was not indigenous. The idea that you had to have a certain amount of, quote, native blood to be indigenous was really foreign to many indigenous peoples, and it was totally contrary to longstanding cultural practices of intermarriage and adoption. So opponents to this law included people who objected to the use of blood quantum for a range of reasons. When the Colville tribe voted, there were 421 votes in favor of the Indian Reorganization Act and 562 votes against it. But more than 700 people who were eligible did not cast a vote. The initial wording of the act had been that 51% of eligible voters had to vote against the act in order for a tribe to reject it and Colville Superintendent Harvey K. Meyer and the Office of Indian Affairs had told tribal members that votes that were not cast would be counted in favor of the act. But in 1935, the act was amended to require a majority of votes cast in favor in order to pass the act. And this standard is what was applied to the vote of the Confederated Tribes of the Colville Reservation. Morning Dove and other supporters of the Indian Reorganization Act argued that the earlier standard had to have influenced whether people had decided to vote or not, and that changing the criteria after the fact meant that there needed to be a new vote. The tribe drafted a new constitution, which was passed in February of 1938. But because of that vote, Congress did not accept it as having been created under the Indian Reorganization Act's terms, and... The terms of the Indian Reorganization Act, including its land protections, consequently did not apply to the Colville Reservation. Morning Dove was deeply upset by this outcome and was one of the people who thought the way the vote had been handled was unfair. She continued to advocate for another vote that the federal government would recognize. She was also elected to the Council of the Confederated Colville Tribes in 1935. But in late July of 1936, she became ill and severely disoriented. Family members took her to Medical Lake State Hospital, which was a psychiatric hospital, and she died there on August 8th at the age of about 48. Her cause of death was given as exhaustion from manic depressive psychosis, but this was really kind of a catch-all diagnosis that was used for a lot of people who died while in the hospital's care. Like, it my read of this is that she was ill and that her illness was causing psychiatric symptoms and then she was given this cause of death that did not actually shed any light onto what was really going on. 
According to obituaries, she was survived by her husband, her father, four brothers, and three sisters. In the years before her death, Morning Dove had been working on an autobiography, mainly about her life until roughly the year 1900. She wrote a lot about her family and how they lived and traditions and practices involving things like her first menstrual period or preparing for marriage and caring for children. She described gathering berries, fishing for salmon, hunting, and winters full of singing, dancing, and storytelling. She also wrote about an incredibly difficult winter she survived in 1892 and 1893 due to both blizzards and flooding, and she wrote about her people's history. She wasn't able to finish a completed draft before her death, and when she died, her notes for the book were with Dean and Geraldine Gooey. Apparently, Dean had planned to turn these notes into an actual book after he retired, but then he died in 1978 without having done so. Geraldine later gave the notes to her former anthropology professor and friend, Erna Gunter, who ultimately, after working with them a bit, returned them back to Geraldine. More than four decades after her death, Morning Dove's notes, contained in about 20 folders, were given to Jay Miller, who at that point had been working with Colville tribe elders on recording their stories for about five years. Miller edited the notes for print. His introduction states that he would not have been able to turn her notes into a book without his experience working with Colville elders, which he continued to do as he worked with the autobiography. He had been working with the people whose first language was an interior Salish one, but whose words were being written down in English. In an essay, he described this as thinking in Salish and writing in English. The same was true of Morning Dove, who was always more fluent in Insiukchen than in English. Her writing in English often reflected thought processes and structures that came from the syntax of her first language and her indigenous culture. Miller also made changes based on how the Colville people he was working with in the 1980s were writing and speaking. Like, in some cases, the language she had used 50 or more years before had come to be seen as antiquated or referencing stereotypes. This book, Morning Dove, a Salish and Autobiography, came out in 1990. There have been criticisms of Miller's work with this autobiography. For example, in her review of both the autobiography and of a new printing of Kogiwea that came out in 1990, Alana Kathleen Brown argues that Miller downplayed the significance of Morning Dove's achievements and undermined her authority as the narrator of her own life. She frames Miller's portrayal of Morning Dove as misogynist and argues that his notes that were part of the 1990 edition of Coyote Stories were patronizing and pedantic. She also disagrees with his decisions to edit Morning Dove's work into standard English, saying that doing that took away a lot of her thought and nuance. This review is really pretty scathing. But at the same time, Brown also notes that the autobiography itself is really important as a work by an Indigenous woman talking about her own life from her own perspective at that point in history. Today, the Confederated Tribes of the Colville Reservation is a federally recognized tribe with more than 9,000 enrolled members. And it is still affected by the outcome of the Indian Reorganization Act vote that Morning Dove was connected to in the 1930s. 
In 2011, then-Tribal Chairman Michael Finley spoke about the ongoing legacy of the vote before the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs during oversight hearings on the 75th anniversary of the Act. As one example, since the tribe wasn't able to reacquire lands under the Act, parts of the reservation are sort of a checkerboard, which creates problems related to whether the tribe or another community has jurisdiction in terms of things like law enforcement and public safety. He also noted that the lack of protections from the Act gave the tribe less negotiating power during the construction of the Grand Coulee Dam. The dam was finished in 1942 and was built partly on reservation lands and flooded roughly 18,000 acres of reservation land, including people's homes and burial sites. Yeah, so even though this happened right at the end of her life, uh, something that she sort of, I think, would have continued to advocate for had she lived longer, um, something that's still having just a lot of ongoing impact today. Uh, Almost a hundred years later. Yeah. And I have a little bit of listener mail before we wrap up today's episode. This is from Aaron, who says, Hello, Holly and Tracy. Thank you for the hard work you guys put into the podcast. I'm currently renovating my home in Wilmington, North Carolina, and catching up on missed episodes has kept me company. I really enjoyed your latest six impossible episodes on ghosts. I am from Wilmington, about 25 minutes north of where the Mako Light has been seen. My father-in-law used to go out with his friends in the early 70s and try to see the light. He swears he's seen it twice, and one of those times he says he's seen the shadow of a man swinging the light. He loves telling his the grandkids about it in the spookiest voices he can muster. We all love it, especially this time of year. It's so fun to hear the history of things so close to home. I would love to hear more about the 1898 coup d'etat. I admit I have not looked to see if another host has done it already. Attached is my pet tax. My sweet baby boy, Bagheera, he is every bit the giant protective panther he's named for. Not going to feel bad about ending that sentence with a preposition because all the rules are made up and the points don't matter. That is my mom holding him in the first picture. She is not that small. Baggy pants is just huge. (laughs) (laughs) Much love, Aaron. Uh, I wrote back to Aaron and said, uh, actually, Holly and I did a two-part podcast on the 1898 coup d'etat in Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, I do not remember exactly when that uh, came out. And um, so I love these cat pictures for a couple of reasons. Uh, One is that the cat that I grew up with uh, as a child was um, a gray tabby that had some similar markings and colorings to this kitty cat. Uh, That cat, however, was much smaller. Um, It is truly enormous cat, according to the picture. (laughs) Um, Very big. I want to pet this kitty. Always. Uh, so thank you so, so much, Erin, for these wonderful cat pictures and for this story. I love hearing about people, uh, people's family stories about the Mako Light and whatever other ghost stories that we talked about in that episode. So if you would like to send us a note about this or any other podcast, we're at HistoryPodcast at iHeartRadio.com. We're all over social media at Missed in History, uh, which is where you'll find our Facebook, our X thing, our Instagram that kind of stuff. You can send us a note at historypodcast at iheartradio.com, which I might have said already. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app or wherever else you'd like to get your podcasts. 
Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net.